You know, God doesn't love all of us. He does not love all of us. He loves each one of us. Separate apart from everybody else on the planet, he loves you. If you were the only person who needed to know him, the only person who needed to have forgiveness, the only person who ever made a mistake, he would have done everything he did just for you. I know that's incomprehensible to our finite minds, but we're talking about an infinite God who is the epitome of infinite and eternal and unconditional love. As St. Augustine said, he loves each of us as though there's only one to love. Only one. That one is you and you and you and you and you and each one of us uh, individually. Dwight L. Moody uh, was a young man living in Boston, uh, very poverty-stricken family. He only went to school about uh, a year or two. And then he started selling shoes, and the manager of the shoe store started talking to him about accepting Jesus as his Savior. And uh, D.L. Moody became a Christian as a young man, moved to Chicago and continued selling shoes, and saw young people on the street who, uh, on Sunday who were not going to anybody's church or not involved in any Sunday school or Bible study. And so he started uh, getting them off the street and started teaching the Bible, started sharing what Christ had done, uh, in his life. And the number grew and it grew and grew and it finally grew into what later became the Moody Memorial Church, one of the great churches of the world and Dwight L. Moody became one of the great preachers of the world. He preached in England, he preached in America and it is said of him that he took England in one hand and America in the other and lifted both closer to God. What a tribute. He heard early in his life, he had to work hard to learn the English, to learn English. He had had so little schooling and they made fun of him at first in England when he went uh, because of his poor language. He said, I do murder the king's English, but I do preach the king's message. <laughs> and so he never got angry. He never fought back. And he was an incredible, being incredibly used by God uh, to witness to the world. And he said in one of his sermons, quoting John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said, you know, if that scripture had read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if D.L. Moody believed in him, that he would forgive him, that he would have everlasting life. He said, I would have known that there was someone else named D.L. Moody. I knew he wasn't talking about me, but he didn't use my name. He used whosoever will. And that means you and you and you and you and every one of us. Write your name in there. It's just for you. And a young man, a young preacher, and a young evangelist by the name of uh, Henry Morehouse started talking to D.L. Moody early in his ministry about the power of the love of God, and it completely changed D.L. Moody's life. He had been pretty judgmental and condemning in a lot of his preaching, and Morehouse introduced him to the incredible, incomparable power of God's love. And Dwight L. Moody became known then after that as the apostle of love to the world, D.L. Moody. And so we're talking about the incredible love of God and it is revealed so magnificently in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now I'm preaching these uh, Sundays between now and October the 14th on sermons that uh, some of you have asked that I repeat and I preach and talk about. And so we're going to turn to the 15th chapter of Luke in the Bible in the book rack in front of you. It's page 1035 if you want to follow along. 
Now, I have preached on this passage of Scripture, the 15th chapter of Luke, my favorite passage in the Bible. I have preached on it, I know, hundreds of times in revivals long before I came to Trinity uh, 42 years ago and have preached on it a number of times here through the years, and I was asked to preach on it again today. But I have seen and learned some new things in this story that I'd never seen before. Isn't it marvelous that old dogs can learn new tricks, that old preachers can see new insights? Uh, I think we're all supposed to continue growing all through our lives, mentally and physically and relationally and spiritually. We're to continue growing as uh, Jesus himself did. So I will share hopefully some things that have helped will help you that is, uh, that, as they have helped me. Now, you read here in the first part of this story, well, let me parenthetically say, over half of everything Jesus said was a story, a parable. As the best definition of a parable I've ever heard, it's a short story with a long meaning. Jesus told a lot of short stories with long meanings, which is why even when you're 10 years old, you can see something in the Scripture that applies to you, and when you're 70-plus years old, you can see something here that applies to you. The Scripture is fathomless, and as we continue to have new experiences in our lives, we see new truths in the Word of God that applies to us at whatever juncture we might be in at that point in time in our lives. Now, the tax collectors and notorious sinners were crowding around him to listen to him. Now, the tax collectors were Jews who had sold out to the Roman Empire. They, they were looked upon as traitors because they started working for the horrible invaders, the Romans. Matthew was such a tax collector. Zacchaeus was one of the tax collectors. These were people that, the, the ultra-religious of the day, the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, the Sadducees, uh, they condemned them. They thought all, they were all going to hell in a handbasket the tax collectors, and notorious sinners. Now, notorious sinners, by their definition, was anybody who did not obey the Jewish law or anyone who was a Gentile. So by the definition of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, 95%, if not 100% of us in this room, by the definition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ultra-religious of Jesus' day, every one of us are notorious sinners. You look around here, there's not a perfect person in the group, beginning with the person who's talking to you. We're all sinners. But they considered people sinners who were not Jews. And even if you are Jewish, if you don't obey all of the Jewish laws that they had concocted, you were, by their definition, a sinner. And Mike Fanning pointed out in his Sunday school class today, 613 Jewish laws. If you didn't keep all 613, my soul, I couldn't even learn 613. But if you didn't keep 613, you were a notorious sinner. Or if you broke the Sabbath laws, over 30 of them, you're a notorious sinner. Well, these are the people that came to Jesus. And why did they come to him? Because they heard in him and felt in him and saw in him hope and love and grace. And there is nothing more powerful, nothing more magnetic than love and compassion and joy, joy. Now, as I go through these three stories quickly, there are some themes that stand out. Underline these to begin with. Joy. In fact, in these stories, you'll read the word joy or rejoice or a synonym of it. You will re re read that eight times. I mean, this whole paragraph, this whole chapter is loaded with joy, 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 rejoice, 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 just as the choir so appropriately and beautifully sang a few moments ago. Joy. 
Another theme, restoration. We'll talk about that. Compassion and the heavenly Father's unconditional love. Tax collectors and notorious sinners crowded around him to listen to him. And so the Pharisees and scribes continually grumbled. That's one of the best things Pharisees do is grumble. <laughs> Murmuring. And they said, this fellow is welcoming notorious sinners and even eating with them. <coughs> welcoming them. They meant that as a criticism. And isn't it interesting that a lot of the statements in the scripture about people who were opposed to Jesus, isn't it interesting that some of their criticisms of him have turned out to be some of his greatest compliments? He welcomes sinners. Thank God for that. You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. None of us would be here today worshiping here him if we did not know that we were invited by the Lord God himself. And he eats with them. Now, that... That is a little difficult for us to think, oh, that's no big deal. Uh, in our day, we have lunch with people we don't even know. We're on committees and we go to something we're involved with. We eat, we eat, we go to some restaurants where everybody sits down where there's an empty chair and you eat together. In Jesus' day, and it was not like that at all. They didn't have restaurants. Uh, if you ate with someone, they invited you to eat with them in their, in their home. And by going there to their home and eating with them, it was in that day considered an, an acceptable, that you are accepting that person irrespective of who they are. They may be the most horrible man in town, but you go to be with them in the eyes of the community, you would be accepting them. That's why Jesus raised so many eyebrows when he went home with Zacchaeus. He went home to do what? He went home to eat with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a notorious sinner by the Pharisees' definition because he was a tax collector, a Jew who'd sold out uh, to the Romans. And Jesus invited himself to go home with him. And in so doing, he was saying, I accept you. I accept you. That doesn't mean I approve of what you're doing or what kind of person you are, but I accept you as a child of God with the capacity to know God and to know his incomparable grace and forgiveness. So here this is a, Jesus, it's even implied that Jesus invited people to come have dinner with him. And so this was just a, 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 an insult to Jesus that they were throwing at him. He eats with sinners. And he told them the following story. One man of you, if he has a hundred sheep and he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness or the desert and continue to look for the lost one, 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 you, 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 until he finds it. And when he finds it, with joy he puts it on his shoulders. And when he reaches home, he calls his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be joy in heaven over one sinful person who repents than over ninety-nine upright persons who do not need to repent. Now, there's a little sarcasm in what Jesus was saying there. He was more than subtly kind of sticking a needle in the pompous Pharisees. They, they don't need to repent. They're so perfect. They look down their nose at everybody that uh, they don't need. They, 
they got the word. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was painting their picture in very subtle but very powerful way. Um, and then Jesus goes on and says, What woman, if she has uh, ten coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me because I have found the coin which I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy. There's that word again. There is joy among the angels of God over one sinful person who repents. Now, let me ask you a question. How can a sheep or a coin repent? How does a sheep repent? How does a coin repent? Well, in some of the reading I've done in the last few weeks, thinking about this passage of Scripture, with the help of a marvelous biblical scholar named Kenneth Bailey, and uh, a theologian by the name of Wright, The emphasis here on this passage of Scripture, when Jesus is using this statement, the emphasis is not so much the sheep and the coin. The main emphasis is the nature and the spirit of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' activity is taking the initiative. He is taking the initiative. The emphasis here is not the sheep or the coin. They are lost. They need to be found. But the emphasis of the story is that Jesus himself takes the initiative and he actively goes out to find lost sheep and lost coins. Even people who do not know that they can repent or people who have never even heard the word, he still comes with his divine initiative to reach out to us and to reach out to anyone and to everyone. The hero of this story is not the sheep or the coin. The hero of this story is a God who takes the initiative through his son Jesus Christ to come to each one of us irrespective of who we are. Where we, whether we are a wandering sheep who wanders off in green pastures, sheep don't get angry. They don't shake their fist in the face of the shepherd. Uh, they don't rebel. They just kind of drift. They just kind of drift. They kind of drift. How does a coin get lost? It gets, it gets neglected. It's not the coin's fault. And the sheep is not lost in the sense that he ceases to exist. And the coin does not cease to exist. It's just out of place. And so what Jesus has come to do is to get things and people and us back into place. That's what the whole word restoration means. The word restoration means it's an act of putting something or someone back into its place or its proper condition. Incredible thing that Jesus has done in taking the initiative to come to us even when we may be as dumb as a sheep or as dead as a coin. You know Christianity is the only religion in the world. We've said it, we'll say it again as long as we have breath. Christian religion, Christian faith is the only religion in the world that has a seeking God. The only one, the only religion that has a seeking God. A God that seeks for sheep and for coins, that takes the initiative. All the other religions of the world have men trying to find God. What do you do to get to God? What prayer do you pray to get to God? What building do you go to to get to God? What rules do you keep to get to God? How do you find out God's unlisted number? How do you find out how God's going to let you in the back door? Somehow, some way, through some activity, 
you're going to find God. No, we don't find him. He finds us. It was God who came to us. Go all the way back to the beginning of time. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first chapters of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve decided they wanted to wander off. They wanted to run things on their own. So they left God out of their, out of their lives and out of their picture. So when they got out there and they found out that things weren't going well, did they start looking for God? Did they start calling upon God? Did they start repenting? No. Who came looking for them? God came looking for them. It says he came in the cool of the evening and crying out, Adam, which means man, means all of us, Adam, 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 where are you? I want you. God knew where Adam was. God wanted Adam to know where Adam was. God wanted Adam to know that he needed him. So here is the great God. Jesus didn't come to make a Christian out of God. This has been God's spirit and his love from the very beginning. We've just been slow to learn it and are still slow to learn it that God has taken the initiative to come to us wandering ones, to those of us who are lost coins that have fallen into the dust of earth, whatever it might be, that captures our lives and keeps us from being utilized as the coin will be utilized in the hands of of the woman as the sheep will be utilized in the hands of the shepherd so you and I will be utilized in the hands of our great shepherd restoration the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he restoreth my soul he's come to restore every one of us here today the word restoration, you do it, you do it, you restore furniture, you restore a car, it can be restored to newness and it'll look like brand new. And what he's come to do for all of us today, any of us and every one of us, to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Now, isn't it interesting? And I want to point this out. I think it's very, very crucial. The sheep and the coin were both returned to a community of joy. Shepherd said, come on in, all my friends, call all my friends and neighbors to together to come and rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Woman says, all my friends, all my neighbors, come rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Rejoice, rejoice. That's a synonym for the church. That's exactly what the church is supposed to be. It's to be a place of celebration of joy. Not a place of condemnation. Not a place of judgment. Not a place of pointing fingers, but a place of reaching out hands. And that's the spirit of this church. And may it always be the spirit of this church. That anybody and everybody, irrespective of who they are, whatever their moral condition might be, whatever their color, whatever their education, whatever their income, anything, everybody ought to feel when they walk in here a celebration of joy I am here in a place where people love God and love one another. I told this story this morning in the service and a man came up to me and said, Buckner, you were talking about the way it was in the home I grew up in. I read this story many years ago and uh, I don't know that it's true, but it does illustrate a truth. The truth about a 
home. A family lived in the country on a farm. And uh, after church on Sunday, they uh, came home and they had dinner at home, which was pretty much customary in those days. And uh, a little son in the, in the family wanted to read the funny papers. Uh, the funny papers used to be funnier than they are now. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I mean, I'm tired of political state. I want to see Snoopy. And uh, anyway, uh, wanted to read the funny papers, the comics. They said, no, it's the Sabbath. Well, first of all, Sunday's not the Sabbath. Uh, Saturday is the Sabbath. From Friday night to Saturday night is the Sabbath. Christians worship on the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. He was dead on the Sabbath. As to, if to say all the old rules are gone now, the rule of love and life has come through the resurrection of Christ. So, uh, anyway, this little kid was told, no, you can't read that. Can't uh, read the funniest. In fact, the man talked to me after, he said, no one read the paper at all. No one read the paper at all on Sundays. Did any of you grow up in homes like that that could hold up your hands and say, yeah, I see you and you, a number of you. Well, he said, I want to go out to play. They said, no, you can't go out to play. It's the Sabbath. So he couldn't go out and play ball, couldn't go out and throw the tennis ball up against the barn. So he finally just kind of wandered out, and there was a fence there, and the old mule that they used to pull the plow, the old mule was standing there at the end of the fence and, and head over the fence, just standing there like a mule does. A little boy walked up, saw the mule, knew him well, started stroking his head, it all said, you know, you've got such a long face and you look so sad, you must be a wonderful Christian. <laughs> Read it, joy, 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 eight times over and over and over again. This church is to forever be a place where we celebrate the joy of the Lord, which is the scripture says, is our strength. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly, more abundantly. What an incredible man he is. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And you know this story well. You've heard it. I've heard it a hundred times, more than a hundred times. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. So he divided his property between them. Not many days after that, the younger son got together all he had and went away to a distant country, and there he squandered all of his property by living in dissipation. Squandered his all of his uh, possessions, everything that happened. As most of you know, our son Michael, Dr. Michael Fanning, has his Ph.D. in Old Testament archaeology and Hebrew, and he wrote a marvelous paper, about four or five pages long, on a study of this story, the prodigal son. If you'd like to have one, call him and he will, he will fax it to you or email it to you. It uh, is an incredible insight that helped me, as did Kenneth Bailey in his book, uh, Poets and Peasants. When he talks about this event that occurs here that we can't take for granted, let me tell you, it is something that just would, would shatter the first century world. When this younger boy came to his father and said, Father, share with me the property that falls to me. What he was really saying to his father was, not just give me an allowance, not just give me uh, a portion of money, 
What he was really saying was, Father, I want you to die. I want you dead so that I will inherit not only my share of the money, but I will also inherit part of this property. It would, that never happened. It would never have happened. Kenneth Bailey points out that even in the other Oriental religions of the Middle East, such an act was despicable, unthinkable, incomprehensible, insulting beyond words. As if to say, die, get out of my life so I can have things. See how serious this was and what a reputation it created within the community. Mine was unthinkable that a boy would do such a thing as that. Never, but he did in this story. So he went to the far country and he spent everything. And then the Bible says he came to himself. I think he came to himself because he was hungry. I really don't believe he wanted to go back to try to make up with his father because he'd already told his father he wanted him to die. I think he decided, well, I'm going to go back. At least the people who work for my father are eating some stuff, and I can't even eat anything they're feeding these pigs. They won't even feed me. And so there he was in the pig pen, smelling like a pig, living there. So he said, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Now, what he meant by saying make me as one of your hired servants is he said, I want to go to work so that I can pay you back for what you gave me. I want to come back and do works, good works, so that I can work my way back into your grace, into your love. Work my way back into the family. I don't want to come back. I don't see it. I can't come back as a son, but let me come back just as a slave just so I can get something to eat. Now, I, I don't believe he was coming back because he wanted to make up with his father. I believe that basically he was motivated by hunger. And I frankly don't care what motivates a person to move, start moving toward the heavenly father. Whatever it is, God will use it. But when you get there, you're going to find a lot more than physical food. So he started home. And when he was a great way off, the scripture says, the father saw him. Why did he see him when he was a great way off? Because he was looking for him. When he was a great way off, the father saw him. And he had compassion. It's one of those four things I mentioned. He had compassion on him. And he ran down the road. As Aristotle said, great men never run in public. Uh, he never read Ken Cooper's book on aerobics. <laughs> but Aristotle said, great men never run in public. Well, he had those long robes on, you know, and all very beautiful. And he picked those up, and he started running down the old dusty road, and the servants started running down with him. They thought, what in the world's going on? They couldn't probably recognize him as the son, but the father could. And when he got down there, he threw his arms around him, had compassion on him, and they kissed him smelling of pigs. And the boy said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And you've noticed, and I've pointed this out, he's, he's, he didn't get to say, make me as one of your hired servants. Now what I've always thought and what I've preached, and I'm not saying that it was, it was wrong, but I think I have a new insight. 
I've always said, I believe that the father interrupted the boy and not let him say, make me as one of your hired servants. I really don't believe that, I don't believe that anymore is exactly what happened. What I believe is this. I believe that when that boy saw his father, whom he had wanted to see dead, seeing his father running down that road to meet him, with tears streaming down his face, with his arms outstretched, rejoice, rejoice, my son is coming home. And he threw his arms around him. That boy knew he was home. And so he never said, make me as one of your hired servants because he knew he would never be one of the hired servants. Now this had incredible, an incredible influence upon Martin Luther. When forgiveness occurs, when forgiveness occurs, it shatters our view of God and of ourselves. And that's what happened to that boy coming home. When he got there and he saw his father running to meet him, his whole view of the father's love, un incomparable love, unconditional love, love that runs down the road to meet you, a dirty kid coming home with the smell of pigs all over you, and you're standing there like that, and he comes to greet you, it shatters your view of God, and it shatters the view you have of yourself, that you have to somehow work your way back into the grace of God because you don't have to work your way into grace because you can't work your way into grace anyway. It's a gift. Martin Luther picked up on this. In fact, he felt a profound difference as a result of this one story. Luther felt a profound difference between repentance of fear and repentance of love. Repentance of fear may start you home, but it's repentance of love that will bring you to the party and bring you joy and peace and a new robe and a new ring, and new shoes, and music, and dancing on the lawn tonight. I've come home by the grace of God. And this was one of the, the talking points, one of the, one of the difficult points dealing with the Reformation. Do we have repentance of fear, fear of condemnation, fear of judgment, fear of the church excommunicating us? That may move us toward God, but if we come to God, what we're going to experience that will change us from the inside out and change us forever is the repentance of love. The most powerful force in the world to change us is the incredible love of God. This past week, I took one of my grandchildren to buy some school stuff school supplies. We went up to Walgreens and uh, this wonderful grandchild said uh, I wanted to get a pencil, I wanted to get a pad and also wanted a few, few other things to go along with it which grandfathers would give. She wanted, or he or either one of them, wanted to Walgreens. I tried to buy Walgreens, whatever your grandchildren want. But um, so we got, uh, we got in the car and uh, had the pencils there. And I said, 
Let me tell you something, just the two of us in the car. So let me tell you something about pencils. And I don't remember when I read it. I know it's been 30 years ago, uh, more. Uh, and I don't know who wrote it. I don't know how it came to me. It was not a large book. It was a small book on the history of pencils. I thought, what in the world could you write a whole book about pencils? I can see you could write a book with a pencil, but how you could write a book about pencils? But it was an interesting, it was some interesting stuff in there. I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember this. The first pencils they made had, did not have erasers on them. And the reason they didn't have erasers on them was because they felt if they put erasers on there, it would encourage people to make mistakes. And so they then started putting erasers on the pencil. And I said to my grandchild, who was in the back seat, of course, and I was in the front seat, I said, you know, that's exactly what God has done, what Jesus has done. He has come to be an eraser, you know, to erase all the mistakes that we make in life, and all of us mistake, do make mistakes. And so he has come to erase those and put the right answer in there. And there was a long pause, and this wonderful little grandchild said, yeah, you know what, Bo? This is what I'm renamed, as you know. You know what, Bo? The cross is God's big eraser. I couldn't talk for a few moments. Here's a child with an insight into the love and grace and forgiveness of God that thousands of adults don't comprehend. The cross is God's big eraser. That's what these stories are all about. That's what the story of the boy is about. God erases it. It's gone forever and ever and ever. The incredible power of the initiative of God, the seeking God, the loving God, the forgiving God, the big eraser. Let him in your life. And you'll have joy over and over and over again. And if God's leading you to be a part of this church, come join a church that is a community of joy. Not a perfect person here, but people here who love God and love one another and want to love the world to Him. The most powerful force in this community will be a church filled with love. More powerful than fear, judgment, condemnation, threats, may change a little external, but it will never change anything internal. Only the incredible power of God's forgiving love. Trust Him today. If you've never done so, come join His church and be a part of the celebration of joy in this community of joy, and come help us to be in our community people who love the Lord Jesus. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I've come home. I've come home. I've come home. Let's sing. Oh.